Christmas Eve 1981, I was driving back from Toronto to my family home in Montreal. Two friends were with me. Just outside of Cornwall, traffic was flowing really well. But 50 meters in front of me, in my lane, a car had stopped dead without lights or emergency flashes. Thankfully, the lane beside me was open and I managed to swerve around and I blasted my horn in anger. After our hearts settled down, we went on to talk about our holiday plans until we almost didn't have a holiday. That same car that had stopped was now driving right behind me. And I mean right behind. I pulled into another lane to get rid of it and accelerated, but my stalker did the same. This wasn't some idiot trying to be Mario Andretti. This was a person on a mission. And a minute later, we were smashed from behind. We shot out and I have no idea how my car stayed on the road, but my trunk flew up and started smashing wildly like a bad shutter in a windstorm. And then things got quiet. I wanted to pull over, but my friend said, keep going, find an exit lane. Other than a tiny slit to look through in my rearview mirror, all I had was my side view mirrors. And I saw those same lights coming at us. Felt like I was in a Jaws movie. And this time we were hit with such force that we flew off the road into the ditch between the west and east highways. And so did our predator. He got out of the car and started walking towards us. I was scared, I thought he must have a gun, some kind of vendetta. My friends wanted to get out and fight, but I was too scared to even move. And then he turned, walked up the bank, and in the middle of the highway, with his back to traffic, he started walking back to Toronto. At the Cornwall police station, after we were towed out, and they had caught the culprit and found booze and pills in his car, oh, I didn't care. I wanted to charge that person with attempted murder. And ironically, months later, I found out he got a $300 fine. How we survive being in the wrong place at the wrong time, I'll never know. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. On April 6, 2018, 29 people were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Players and coaches and friends, the Humboldt Broncos Hockey Club. We have confirmed a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos was involved in a serious crash with a semi-truck. Killed 16 people on the team's bus, injuring 13 more. It was an unimaginable... The tragedy sending a small, tight-knit community spiraling into a grief. This is a moment when we must come together to support, to comfort, and to lean on one another. We will persevere, and we will honour the souls that were lost. One of the survivors, Caleb Dahlgren, joins me today. As you listen to his story, imagine your life at his crossroads. Waking up in a hospital bed four days after the accident, not knowing what happened. His brain so badly damaged that his parents have been told that he might be in a permanent vegetative state. People he loves, his teammates, are no longer with him. And he has to come to terms with the fact that he survived why others didn't. This is a story where ordinary does truly become extraordinary, where courage, conviction, mindset prove the adage that where there is a will and an opportunity, there's also a way. We've seen the carnage in the ditch and all the bags of peat moss spewed all over and hockey bags and shoes and clothing all over the field. The ambulance attendants were waiting by their stretchers and nobody was being taken to the stretchers. Um, lots of people were being taken off there, but nobody was being brought to the stretchers and lots of people there, but none of them were alive. 
Caleb, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much for having me on here. Really looking forward to chatting with you. So before we get to the crossroad that ended and changed the lives of so many, I want to first get to know you before that horrific moment. You grew up in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Correct. I was a Saskatchewan Prairie boy my entire life. Your parents, Mark and Anita, in interviews, their eyes shine. They, they speak no wrong of you. Is that because they're just grateful that you were one of the lucky ones that survived or are you just one of those great kids that they're so proud about? I think honestly, they're very, very proud of me and don't see the flaws in myself. And I do see the flaws in myself too. I know there's a lot that I can do to be better. Um, but also I was really fortunate to have them raise me to the person I am today and lead by example throughout life. And they weren't the only ones who raised me. I was fortunate to have lots of great coaches, teachers, mentors, friends. So there's rumors you were a bit of a difficult birth that you came out holding a hockey stick. Is it true <laughs> that hockey, skating, and rollerblades were what you first learned to do? I was pretty much fed hockey, which I absolutely loved. There's a baby picture of me, just a little kid laying on the bed and dressed in my dad's hockey gear. You barely see my head. I'm like, got the gloves up, they're up to like my chin, have the stick on me. I got a jersey, my skates the size of me. Um, so I was pretty much born into the hockey family. And then even on the birth announcement, it said like first round draft pick. So at age four, you're delivered, or at least your parents had a tough blow when they find out that you're diagnosed as a type one diabetic. It was hard for me to even grasp what exactly had happened to my life and what had flipped. I knew that when I was in a hospital, I wasn't happy. I was angry, I was frustrated. Um, my parents quoted me saying that I hate this doctor's house. I'm going to throw this chair through the window so I get sent home. So I was obviously really troubled and wasn't happy in the hospital. And as soon as I got out of the hospital, I thought I was home free. And I remember times of me trying to hide from my parents. I remember like me literally going in the basement, hiding from them and then screaming when they were coming at me uh, to get my needle. And that was very hard for me to grasp and come to terms with was the fact that I needed needles to survive. Back then... As a child, you know, your friends are out playing, you need a needle, that's going to slow you down. But I read something that you wrote when you said it actually motivated you. Inside of me, it was like, now I can use this as fuel. Instead of letting this bring me down, I can actually use it to rise me up. And yeah, I might have to work harder than the other person. I might have to prove myself more than the other person beside me. But in the end and in the long run, it'll pay off because I'll have more of a work ethic. I'll have more grit, resilience, determination to battle through other things in life that come my way. My coaches would say, hey, like maybe you should change sports or I don't think you should really play hockey or that kind of thing. It's like, no, like I want to prove you wrong, but I also want to prove my supporters right. I want to prove people who are beside me saying, hey, you can do this right. Like, yeah, I can do this. And so I had a great support system growing up. I had friends who were really supportive and didn't treat me different. And then I also had school kids that might have treated me a bit different and teachers who may have treated me a bit different, but that comes with anything and we all have our own grind in life. And so my grind was diabetes and everybody has their own one. And when did you start realizing that that kid wearing his dad's hockey outfit, you could go someplace with it other than just where I, my hockey career was outside a streetlight playing ball hockey with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was part of my hockey career too, is to be on the road playing road hockey, but I think for me, it was when I was like pretty young, I was really elite at a young age. One season I had, I think like a hundred plus goals in a few games. And that was like kind of when it really kind of hit me and my family that something could come out of this. I always wonder what my parents thought of me. Both of my parents have passed. And I'd be curious to ask Mark and Anita, was hockey 
their way of saying, hey, you can be a normal kid? Or was hockey something to them that said, this is a dream, just go after it? I think it was more the life lessons you get from the game too, and from sports in general, the teamwork, the sacrifice, selflessness, the community that you have, the bonding, even the mental toughness too that comes with the sport. Being a diabetic, it was more difficult. And you had like Bobby Clark, people could say, oh, yeah, Bobby Clark. But Bobby Clark's era was before my era. So I really didn't have him to look up to. And then you can't, there was no YouTube at the time. So I couldn't YouTube videos of Bobby Clark highlights. Um, and so he did feel alone at times. He did feel kind of trapped. And so for me, it was nice to be a part of a team. I was the only child too. So my teammates became my brothers. Sports definitely have helped me grow as a person, develop personal skills, and also have lifelong friends. You know, hockey and organized hockey in Canada, hockey means so much to our brand and who we are as a, as a nation, but it's falling off the cliff. It's like 8% of people are playing organized hockey. Some people talk about the time commit, financial commitment, the safety. What do you think we can do to position hockey the way you talk about it in terms of the camaraderie, the lessons learned, the experiences, the lifelong friends. Do you think we need to do a better job doing that? I think if we were able to lower the prices, there'd be more access for all Canadians. Equipment is now very, very expensive. Like top line sticks are around $400. And if there was more access to gear, more access to actually learning how to play, instead of having that big time commitment of three or four sessions a week, maybe just once a week, because in Humboldt, when I was there, we ran a rec hockey program. And it was just a program for children to learn how to skate. And it was once a week, and kids absolutely fell in love. And now we're playing minor hockey because of that. Traveling to a highly anticipated playoff game when the unthinkable happened along a rural highway. The hockey world is an unbelievable world. Uh, you can't make up for loss. You just can't. It's got to rip the heart of your chest. Uh, we pray for those families and thinking about them. And um, I don't know what else to say, but, uh, you know, a horrific, horrific accident, a tough day. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Caleb, April 6th started off as a pretty ordinary day for you, didn't it? It really did. It was just a typical game day. We were actually in our Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League playoffs against the Nipwin Hawks when I was in Humboldt. Typical game day, had pregame skate, went to Johnny's, had a pregame brunch, went back home, had our naps, packed uh, some clothes, tossed, tossed in our vehicle, drove to the arena. Once we got to the arena, we packed up our gear, had a little meeting with the team and head on the bus like a normal road trip would be. And it was awesome. I had such a great time on the bus. That was one of the best things about being an athlete and especially at Humboldt was that we always had fun bus trips. Guys would hang out, chat, laugh, joke around, play cards. So when you talk about in your book, in your interviews about the seating order on the bus, it was based on hierarchy and age, wasn't it? So take, take mm -hmm. us through getting on the bus as a team and how everybody sort of finds their designated place. For most of my career, honestly, all of my career, it is a hierarchy. The veterans, well, I guess coaches are at the very front. And then um, athletic therapists, who are like personnel right after. And then after that, it goes youngest rookie to oldest rookie. And then it goes from youngest vet to oldest vet or even most games played. Um, at the very, very back. It's definitely like a hierarchy for sure. You earn your stripes. And if you have more games played than the other person, um, then you get the advance further back. But if you have 
Um, if you're older, but have less games play, you're still a little bit lower. Um, it's just, it's just different. It's just a hierarchy of hockey teams. And so, um, all our 20 year olds were at the back of the bus. There was nine of us on the team that year. Um, and so we were all at the back of the bus, but yeah, so I sat in, I think row 12 aisle seat driver's side. And did you ever think that the seat you were in was the reason you're with us today? I do. And I don't The person beside me passed away and the person in front of him passed away. So and then the person behind me passed away and behind him passed wow. away. You don't remember the accident, but you're quite lucid when you talk about the banter and camaraderie leading up to it. Yeah. And that was the whole idea was that we knew we had to play loose. We couldn't play tight and on edge, but we knew we had to be dialed in when the puck did drop. And so it was like loose and fun. And we were joking around on the bus. And then normally I like to visualize before I play. And that night I was in a shutdown role. So I was visualizing like what I was going to do on the ice and how I was going to shut down the top line. So I usually, what I do is I put my music, put my headphones in, press play, and then I close my eyes and put my head down. I did that and everything went black. And that was the last thing I remember. I woke up in the hospital four and a half days later being told of the news of the crash. He acted like he knew what was going on, but it wasn't until four days later that he went for a sleep and then when he woke up from the sleep, he was asking again, where am I? Take us back to that moment. Does anything really make sense? No, it didn't. And for me, the most logical thing was, so I woke up and I looked around and I saw my parents in there kind of crying and kind of looked around and I closed my eyes and I thought I was dreaming. I literally thought I was in a dream. I thought I was just having like a little nightmare or dream, whatever it was, and and then I opened my eyes again and realized that I wasn't dreaming. I must've got like hit from behind and I, we had our game, I got hit from behind and I hurt my neck, broke my neck, concussed, and I'm in the hospital now. So I was like, how'd our game go? And they're like, there was no game. Um, so my mind started racing and they ended up telling me that Dana passed away. And I was like, what do you mean Dana passed away? And she, they're like, she's the 16th one who passed away. And I was like, what? Previously, they've told me this two times beforehand, and I just had no idea. So in these four and a half days that I don't remember, I was vocal. I was talking to people. I was still with it. However, I don't remember it. It's called post-traumatic amnesia, and it's a state where you're kind of uncharacteristic in manner. You're not truly yourself, but you're still able to communicate. You're still with it. I, at the time, I was very sarcastic. I was ignorant. I was rude. And that was completely uncharacteristic of me. And I don't remember it whatsoever. And when they settled you down to the point that they could do an MRI, there was a lot going on, wasn't there? There was. So for me, I had quite a few extensive injuries. I had a fractured skull and a puncture wound to my skull. I had a scalp D11 on the right side, which is like a road rash. Um, from there, I had broken vertebrae in my neck. I believe it was five. And then I had four broken vertebrae in my back and blood clots in my left eardrum or my right eardrum and left arm. And they were pretty large ones. And then I also had a severe traumatic brain injury. The doctors said I should not be able to walk, write, read, um, even remember my name. The doctor said, if we were to look at you, you should be in a vegetative state and paralyzed from your neck down. That was kind of when it really hit us how severe my injuries truly were and how lucky and grateful I am to be where I am today. Do you believe that you're here today for a higher purpose than just living life. I mean, that it's a miracle, uh, however you want to define it. You defy all the scientific principles that you are 
having this chat with me. At first, I actually didn't think I had that severe brain injury. I knew I had severe brain, I knew I had brain injury, but not that severe because afterwards I was doing all these tests and I was like scoring the highest scores possible in these tests. And I was breaking records on these tests. And the doctors were so confused and conflicted. Like, well, this doesn't make sense because your image is like this, but you're not even close. So I actually got another image in my brain. And I was like, okay, it's a wrong image. Like, I'm sure I had a brain injury, yes, but not to the severe degree. Sure enough, I got it back. And it was the exact same scan, exact same results. And that was when it really hit me just how lucky I am to be in the position I'm in. I don't know if there's a higher purpose. I'm not like really that. I'd say religious, but I am spiritual. I'd say I really don't ask those why questions because you'll never get an answer for them. And I understand that if I focus on that, why, why me and why not the others, it really won't take me down a good path. And so I try to live in the moment and for the time that I am here and make the most of the opportunity that I have. How did you deal with the grieving process? I mean, these people were your family. How did that factor into a body that's so desperate to even begin the healing process? I think at the first I was in denial and I had to look through Twitter and then it kind of hit me that evening after I looked through Twitter and looked at social media again and how real it was. And that kind of was when it really hit me about who was here and who wasn't. I had survivor's guilt for a little bit too. I did ask the question like, why am I here and why are others not? Like you have a father, head coach, Darcy Hogan, father to wife, and he's gone. And a 16 year old phenom who is a lead player, that was called up and had aspirations of going to the NHL that he was gone too. And there's younger guys too ahead of me who had extensive serious injuries and some even passed away too. That just didn't make sense. Why am I here? Why are they not here? Like they could have had such a better life. Like I wish if I could trade places with them, I would. It was just like lots of that kind of survivor's guilt. And then it hit me that I can't be thinking this way. If I am here, which I am, I need to make the most of it because if I was to pass away, say I was one of the ones who passed away, how would I want survivors to live their life? And this is what I asked myself in my hospital bed one night when I was just sitting up thinking about it. And I was like, well, if I passed away, how would I want survivors to live their life? And I'd want them to be happy. I'd want them to follow their dreams. I'd want them to pursue passions, take risks, live life big and to the fullest. I don't want them to go down some native dark path or to be sad about life and never really regroup or get back to it. Like, I want them to honor me. Well, now I'm able to kind of live in honor of them and live my life big for those who aren't here. And even what could I control? I really couldn't control much. I I couldn't control my injuries. I couldn't control a semi-driver. I couldn't control the crash. I couldn't control who was here, who wasn't here. All I could really could control was myself, my actions, my beliefs, my perception, my attitude, how I wanted to move forward from this and how I wanted to turn something so negative into something positive that could help others and including myself. We come back, we talk about hockey sticks and how they were left on the porch. And that simple statement, that symbol was something in some ways, united the world. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You're checking on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. 
I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. Hey, Mom and Dad, well, I made it to the show. You always told me that I would, so don't you worry anymore. Got my teammates by my side, so you don't have to cry. Just promise me one last thing, you leave the light on for my stick out by the door. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Just promise that you'll leave the light on for my stick out by the door. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest, Caleb Dahlgren. Caleb was one of the 13 survivors when a semi-trailer slammed into the bus. He was taking the Humboldt Broncos to a playoff game. Caleb, people leaving hockey sticks on their porch. Sidney Crosby wearing a special sweater. A GoFundMe that raised $15 million. What happened in some ways was one of the most positive injections of humanity I've ever witnessed. It still gives me chills when the whole idea of the hockey stick was really so that the people leaving could pick up a stick as they go to heaven. That was it. It was to show respect and honor to the Broncos, the fallen ones, and that they're with us. And that was some simple gesture that people could do that wasn't really time consuming. It wasn't difficult. It was just to show their solidarity with us. It was actually incredible just I am still at loss for words. I'll never be able to explain how much that support meant to me and all the Bronco families, just because you see, while I was in the hospital, there's this lady beside me and she had maybe one visitor every five days, every three to five days. And we had visitors lined up out of our hallway in line waiting for us. And so like to see that lady going through one of her tragedies in her life, not getting any support or little support and us having the world's support was just something that I really take to heart and something that I want to help even more and be more aware. And there's even a girl from uh, Iraq who reached out, flew all the way from Iraq, wanted to meet Bronco and ended up meeting me. And she said that it was on the news in Iraq and that people in Iraq were very sad and sorry to hear about this. For all those listening to this right now, thank you for your support. If it was just thoughts, mails, letters, donations, sticks on your porch, um, it really meant the world. So thank you. You know, I think it was uh, such an incredible gesture. And it also reminded us how fleeting life is in a moment, as you call it, a crossroad. The world can change. Exactly. I'm going to get to your book, Crossroads, and your foundation in a minute. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, as you're ending your career here, your next move was to go and play for the York Lions at York University. And that all happened through your assistant coach, Mark Cross, didn't it? Yep, it did. When you look back on these things, like you're just so grateful for the connections I made, especially those 16 and 13, 12 others on the bus um, who survived as well. Like the connections that we made were truly incredible. And one of the big connections for me was Mark Cross and his connection to York. I wouldn't be at York without him for sure. I was interested in other schools. And he's like, look, no, like you, you got to go to York. You're going to love it. It's going to be the best time of your life. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to become a better person. He said, Toronto is going to definitely mold you. Um, you're going to have different life experiences. You've got to go to York. Um, at the time, I really looked up to Mark and I still do today. I looked up to him and I knew that 
for me to follow his footprints and take his little path, I thought it was super, super unique and something that I was really excited to do and happy that I did. You verbally committed, but after the accident, fractured skull, six broken vertebrae, puncture wound, brain injury, it would have been pretty easy for York to renege on that offer. And mm-hmm. I was so moved when their expression was very simple. You will always have a place on our team. How did that make you feel? It made me feel whole. My entire life, I was working to be accepted. I was working because I have coaches kind of push me away due to my diabetes or they were a little bit eerie about me. They wouldn't push me away, but they're like, I don't know, like, this is another thing we got to focus on is your diabetes. This is one of the times where it was completely out of my control, all my injuries, and they still wanted me for the person that I was, not the player that I was. They knew I could still impact the team, impact the program, impact the school, even if I just came and never played a game. That was really one of the big things for me that showed that there is more than just a sport, that there is so much more outside of that sport. It was a life-changing moment. How long was it between the time you woke up in that hospital bed and the first time you got to lace up skates again? It would have been, I woke up August or April 11th, I woke up. And then the first time I skated was June 1st. So within less than two months when you're out there it just feels effortless and it feels like you're flying in a sense like you're just gliding on the ice and it feels like high speed obviously because you are going really fast and it feels super smooth that's that seems impossible doctors must still talk about how you recovered as a hockey player we all possess a extensive work ethic especially being a junior a player and at that level we all have a great work ethic because you can't just get there without just talent alone, you have to work. And so we all had miraculous recoveries in the hospital and outside the hospital too, because we all have a strong work ethic. And so they said, if you can walk, you can skate. And I said, yeah, you're right. (laughs) It's it's like no different really for me. Obviously I couldn't go hard. I couldn't exert myself too much and I couldn't um, do anything crazy, but I definitely was able to skate, lace up the skates and go and stick handle on the ice and it felt special. It wasn't just me out there. There's 16 others watching me. I'll always cherish it because it felt like home. When I stepped on that ice, it just felt like home. It felt like happiness. It felt like all the hard work paid off for me to get to this point. You know, it was against the doctor's orders. I was on my way to York that fall. And I wanted to prove that I'm still able to keep up with the team and practice even without contact. And you never got to play a game, but your contribution might be equal to that young Caleb scoring that hundred goals as a kid, wasn't it? I mean, the way they talk about what you meant. I mean, I would imagine at the beginning, there might've been some resentment. We're giving a place to a kid that might not ever play, but what you won over everybody, didn't you? I went there with open, open eyes, open heart and lots of gratitude too for the opportunity that they gave me, especially right out of the crash. And the fact that I have a spot on the team for however many years I want, as long as I want to be aligned. And that truly meant the world to me. And so when I did go there my first year, there was a lot. I had tons and tons of things that were on my plate that normal people, normal students don't deal with, like the media attention, dealing with the aftermath of the crash. Still, I had my all my injuries I had to recover from still, my brain injury. I even had like the emotional impact of losing my 16 family members, moving away on my own and being completely independent. Um, I was able to really grow and flourish my second and third year at York. And that was really when I wanted to like take off and really give back to the community. And so I really 
dove headfirst into everything. I joined student council. I became a assistant strength and conditioning coach for a team, head of recruiting. Uh, I took on lots of big roles. I was really fortunate for my time at York and really did mold me into the person I am. So I don't know if I've won everyone over. I don't know about that, but uh, it definitely meant a lot. You recently retired from hockey. This is a kid that was born with a hockey stick, got to junior A, going to York University, hoping to go and play semi-pro or pro in Europe. That must have been a tough day to close that chapter. I think it was a really difficult day just because it was official. (laughs) I knew two years probably before that my days of playing hockey were done. I found out in 2019 of February that the image was the exact same MRI image as my April 9th, 2018 one. The doctor said, like, you're not even cleared to run. Like, I wasn't even cleared to jog because of the impact that has on my head. It wasn't worth it for my head to go through another trauma. They explained it. They said, like, I'm in this bubble and they call it like a miracle bubble. And my brain's in this bubble and bubbles can sway and they can bounce off things. But sometimes something might hit the bubble and might pop. And if it pops, we don't know what the result could be, but it could be the state that I'm supposed to be in, in the vegetative state. And so it's just not worth the risk. When I was doing well academically, I had lost things going for me. There was no point. So it was like a long kind of winded thing that I knew was going to happen eventually. But to really call a career over now is is definitely hard because it's the first time in my entire life I've never been on a team per se. Obviously, I'm going to Canadian Marble Chiropractic College here coming up in next week and I can create my own team within that but it's not the same kind of element and so it's my first time ever not on a team and I'm looking forward to the new adventure but definitely will be a learning curve too. Hi it's Tony Chapman this is Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. When I come back Caleb and I talk about his foundation and his book Crossroads what it meant to him and what he hopes it'll mean to you. My view April 6th 2018 as a crossroads. There's a point in my life where I was faced with a decision. I wanted to respond in a positive way and I wanted to honor and remember those 16. We're all faced with our own crossroads and how we respond to those crossroads ultimately decides who we are as people. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Caleb Dahlgren, a survivor of type 1 diabetes from age 4, a survivor of a horrific bus crash that took away so many lives and forever changed his. Dahlgren's Diabetes, which is your foundation, you're the happiest person out there. This isn't just a cause. This is whoever gave you the gift to say you could do something at age 4, you're trying to give to a lot of people suffering from this it's <laughs> you nailed it on the head that i'm like the happiest person out there and it's i light up even just talking about it because it means the world to me and it's something i'm really passionate about this program is is a mentorship program for type 1 diabetic children and the whole idea was to let them know that if they manage their diabetes to not let it manage them that they can pursue their dreams and passions and to create awareness to create hope and to create comfort within their setting and so what I'd do is I'd have a diabetes and their family get a pregame meal at Johnny's Bistro. Uh, they'd watch warm-ups, get to wear a diabetes jersey, and they come out for a ceremonial face-off, complimentary tickets to the game. I guess the whole idea of the ceremonial face-off was to get the fans going, to get the kids like proud and excited and feel beautiful for their difference instead of feeling different for their difference. 
after the game, I'd meet with the family of chat about life with diabetes and some of the struggles that I had and answer lots of their questions. And like the questions I had were like, what happens when you go camping? How do you work with your blood sugars with that? Um, what do you do when you're on a first date with someone? How do you tell them that you have to check your blood sugar and you're type one diabetic or even sleepovers? What do you do? Or in hockey, what do you do? Or sports? I'd go to their school or to their hockey team or wherever they'd like. And I do a presentation on diabetes just to create more awareness and to make them feel comfortable in their setting. I have 16 diabetes now. I continue to at York. I just want to keep it as small as 16 because I have a personal relationship with all of them and hopefully create a ripple effect of me impacting these 16 and one of them impacting another 16. I want to talk to you about your book, Crossroads. Tell me the motivation for writing it. Because when I talk to people sometimes, the end of it is much more for their therapy than others. What was your motivation for writing it? It was 100% to help others. I was actually really against it at first, not going to lie. I wasn't going to write it at all. I didn't think I was mentally, emotionally, or really physically even ready to do it. And then I started talking to more people. And Haley Wickenheiser is one of the ones I actually talked to. And I really admire her as a person. She said, why wouldn't you do it? She said, it could help a lot of people. And then I was sitting in class one day and I, this was like just before I was going to officially like say no. And my professor kind of walks in and gives his little spiel about the day. And he's like, look, I want to start with something. If you want to change the world, it starts with you. And he looked at me straight in the eyes. That's when it absolutely clicked. It was like a light went on in my head. I was like, look, I have the opportunity to really make an impact on this world and use my story for good and try to create something positive of this native situation. I've donated a portion of proceeds to STARS Air Ambulance. They help save lives April 6, 2018. They save lives every day. And so that was like one of the big things for me helping others. The second one was I was able to talk about topics that I think really need to be on out there, such as grief, death, resilience, mental health, hope, physical health, um, family, community, um, diabetes. There's lots of different topics in the book that you can definitely take away. You've become quite an accomplished speaker as well. Thanks. What do you hope audiences take away? I hope that they take away that they can conquer whatever they have in their life. And whatever their crossroads are, they can get through them and pick the positive path. And we all have our own grind in life, whether that's school, work, academics, relationships, addictions, you name it, we have our grind. And to truly enjoy the grind. And so hopefully they're able to take those two things away and feel more inspired to do better things in this world. So Caleb, I always end my podcast by focusing on three things that really mattered to me. The first one is this incredible ability to turn impossibility into possibility. The second thing is your, your gratitude. You're just a wonderful human being and you're so grateful to, the, to you say your coaches, your parents, your mentors, your doctors, the ambulance drivers. And that gratitude, I think, is remarkable. And the third thing that I really admire about you, life is not a dress rehearsal. You're one of those people that had a near-death experience. You defied all expectations. And because of that, every moment, every breath, every opportunity in front of you, you go after. Caleb Dahlgren, thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony, for the kind words. And it was really great chatting with you. And this really meant a lot to me. If you're a fan of this show, you'll recognize his voice. It's Amy Deacon. She's the CEO and founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. I've heard Amy speak. She's extraordinary. And I asked her to come on the show to talk about Caleb and what his journey's been like. 
Amy, great to have you back. Tony, thank you so much for having me. What a story. I mean, can you imagine being a survivor of a bus crash that takes so many of your players, your family, waking up four days later, doctors are astonished you have any kind of mental faculty by the trauma to your brain, that you even have movement in your body because of what's happened in the accident. And yet four months later, he's on skates and looking forward to attending university. And he attributes a lot of his recovery to what he calls the sort of the athlete's mindset. And I'm curious from your point of view as a professional, is there such a thing as an athlete having an advantage or a mindset that allows them to attack healing in a different way? Absolutely, it's so interesting, Tony. You know, if you look at some of the top sports teams or teams that have accomplished some of the greatest successes that we that we remember in history, if you look at their their coaches often, there's a very mental element that goes into being an athlete, whether it's meditation, affirmations, visualizations. So from a pretty early age, a lot of these athletes are taught the power of their of their mindset, the power of their thoughts, the power that even if even if they don't see success, even if they're down five goals, whatever it may be, they still have to show up and play like they've never played before. And I do think that translates into how we bounce back from adversity. You're on a bus, the person beside you, the person in front of you is no longer here. You are. How do you come to terms, not only with grief, but especially with grief that's so sudden, and why am I here and they're not there? When grief and trauma happen so unexpectedly, it can often leave us in a state where we're just disoriented. It takes us months, sometimes a year, to kind of get our bearings on what happened and on what is. Be gracious with yourself. We need we need time, right, to adapt to what is when our exactly as you mentioned, our entire world has changed within the flip of a second. The other thing that I would say though is in speaking with people that have experienced immediate grief, immediate trauma, some of them will say that their lives will not be the same. That being said, I think there's a difference between I will never get over it and I will never move forward with my life. We have the right to grieve and to continue to grieve and to continue to honor uh, lives that are lost and things about us that perhaps we'll never get back again because of the trauma that we've endured. More often than not, the people I've interviewed make every second matter. I find that they're the people that are putting such an amazing and positive dent in the universe. Is there something to that as well that when you've been that close, that from this point forward, you're just gonna treasure every moment? I also know that there are people that stay small that stay small and they are so scared to ever get back up, which I think this is why his story is so incredible. Not only did he get back up, but he's made a life for himself where he feels rich, he feels fulfillment. But I think it takes time to get there. It's a balance between honoring the past and your grief, as well as focusing your head and, and your heart on with this one life that I have, with this with this sacred time that I have here on earth, what do I want to do with it? I'm chatting with Amy Deacon, who's the CEO and founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. Coming weeks, you and I are done doing a special series for RBC Insurance on why mental health matters. Thank you for spending the time with me today and obviously for doing that series that's coming up. I think it's going to be great. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.